The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullock, and today we've got a great subject to talk about, one that I know uh, confuses a lot of people, and there's a lot of talk about, especially the last few years. Um, Some people think of the subject one way, others think of it another way, and I have my thoughts, but today I have a great guest who's going to help us see through some of these clouds, Ken Simpson, who's joining us from Australia, and he's been around for... Uh, we'll just say a couple of years, Ken, uh, you know, in this industry. And how about you introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are, what you've done and where you come from. And, you know, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you said just a few years. It, uh, it, it means I don't have to dredge up long-term memories to, to introduce <laughs> myself. Look, I, I, yeah, I've, I've been in and around the, the risk continuity DR space for probably 30 years. And in that time, I, I've sort of been lucky in that I, I came into it like a lot of people via the IT path, but I routinely went in and out. Uh, and I, I think that sort of gives me different perspectives because I've never been a purely only done BC or DR person um, and I've been fortunate enough to have roles like CIO and chief technology officer and uh, you know implementing major change programs so I could bring a, a bunch of different perspectives to it. Uh, it it's interesting on this resilience subject and uh, I'll, I'll continue to use the word resilience because it's the one most commonly used in this part of the world uh, back in oh, I think it was probably back in uh, 10 odd years ago when I started to to write my blog, it was to explore this topic. Topic and uh, yeah, and that's for where our listeners. For our listeners, what's the name of your blog? Uh, it's called Contemplating, but I do everything under the branding uh, called Resilience.ninja, which is the domain name at the moment. Great. And that's actually where we first met uh, when you were blogging back in, in that era. And there's very few of us that were talking about this topic and uh, just became a natural thing to, to start to, to reach out to other people and, and talk and develop the ideas. Mm-hmm, I remember that. So my first question for you, and it's a big one, and I'm sure everyone can guess what the uh, topic is, resilience or resiliency Ken, what is resiliency? We, you know, what there, There's so much mis, 
you know, perceptions about what it is and different viewpoints. And, you know, some are complete polar opposites of others. You know, what is resiliency, you know, in corporations, individuals, you know, overall, what is it? Yeah, I was sort of hoping for a couple of warm-up questions, but let's go straight for the big one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, go for the big it's, one. <laughs> uh, you're right. It, it's it, it's this hard concept because it is a concept, and and we wanted we get the problem because we try to distill it down to simple, often simplistic dictionary definitions. But more importantly, as an industry, we try to distill everything down to an SKU. If we can't sell it and market it, then we we struggle with it. So you, you first, it's not it's not a product and it's not something that anyone can sell you. It's something you have to work on for yourself. So people will often talk about it differently between, say, uh, individuals, organisations and communities, but it's always going to start from the individual. Uh, and and build out from there because it's it's all about people. You, you know, if, if you have a massive crisis and you put a bunch of no-hopers into your command and control, you will <laughs> fail. Right? I don't care yeah. what kind of plans or anything you've got, you will just point blank fail. But if you put top-notch leaders in with bad plans, they have a chance of succeeding. Okay. You normally see that where you have top-notch leaders with no plans mm-hmm. and they, they have a chance of succeeding. So it's going to be distilling it down to people. And when we try to make the dictionary definitions, we make it harder for ourselves because the word resilience or resiliency is used in competing fashions by different disciplines. So most of the ones you'll see to bounce back the you know, the retain equilibrium after a disruption are all from the engineering space. And, and oh, really? they assume, yeah, they, they just assume equilibrium being reachieved and, and you know, the, these qualities of bouncing back. And we, you know, you always hear about the rubber band, you know, it's getting mm-hmm. shaped back, but I've never seen a self-healing rubber band. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. So, so the rubber band, that, those engineering ones only go so far. If you go to the ecological space where they're talking about resilience, you know, in in Canada, in the US, here in Australia, we have massive problems with with bushfires, as we call them, or wildfire, as you, uh, I think is the term you use in North America. Yes, we do. We're we're having a big problem with that in uh, British Columbia on our west west side of the country now. Yep. But if you go to a place that's been burnt out, massively burnt out, that will regenerate. It doesn't need humans to intervene most of the time. Nature can regenerate. And the ecological definitions of resilience have a lot more to do with adaptation than they do with rubber bands and restoring equilibrium. So if we want to get dictionary definitions, we understand where the terminology that we're using comes from and how it's intended. So I'm going to offer you a quote as a a definition, Alex, and it comes from 2003 from uh, Gary Hamill and Lisa Valakangas wrote an article called Quest for Resilience in Harvard Business Review. And they talked about it as the ability to dynamically reinvent business models and strategies as circumstances change. Now, if we take that down to an operational level and say we need to dynamically reinvent how we go and do stuff, 
dynamically reinvent processes and rapidly moving resources around when circumstances change, then we perhaps have a better operational model of resilience that just sort of says it's not about disasters, it's about you know, Kodak as an example. They didn't see digital photography come along. Mm-hmm. You know, resilience isn't about disasters, it's about circumstances changing. That's interesting because everyone in the business continuity disaster planning realm see it as the ability to, you know, implement your plans okay and you know off and off you're going again. You know, like oh yeah, we're resilient because we're we made it through our uh, sprinkler system going off or whatever. You know. Yeah, I I know, but to some extent that goes back to my statement that we we want to make it a product we can sell, mm-hmm. uh, and and sometimes we forget that some of the biggest salesmen are internal specialist areas who are competing for share of budget. But I, I tend to, uh, to take a lot of uh, lead, I guess, from some of the work done in New Zealand at the ResOrgs, uh, Resilient Organisation School, the, in, uh, and they've published a, a lot of material. And I can't remember which of their people uh, probably Erica Seville, who I, I have this wonderful quote that says, resilience is something you are and business continuity is something you do. I've read that one. I, I like and, that quote. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's, you know, there is still business continuity and disaster recovery within or underpinning the things that, that contribute to resilience. But at the end of the day, no amount of business continuity and disaster recovery is going to help though some of those companies in British Columbia that have been burnt out wasn't going to help the the instance post hurricane Katrina in New Orleans so we're mm-hmm. always going to get something that goes beyond our assumptions i mean how many business continuity plans have you seen that contain the assumptions no rubble and no bodies <laughs> Right. Yeah, just about every single one. Yeah. So, therefore, every, every business continuity plan you've ever read then didn't al- allow for a building to fall down or t- for there to be deaths. You know, heaven forbid that that should occur, but it does. Yeah. And and so, in some extent, you might say resilience picks up where the those other disciplines stop. And, and there's another yeah. big difference, I think, that and, – and this is a – uh, this is a uh, message that I use in, in my Resilience Ninja newsletter a lot, that resilience is a, a, a journey, not a destination. Mm-hmm. And in that context, we're never done. Yeah, sometimes we, we all have seen it, and as much as we rail against it, many organisations see BC and DR as projects. You do them, you tick them off, you're done, you move on. Right. Making sure that you've got your uh, audit all happy. Oh, you've got a binder sitting on a shelf or, you know, on an online repository or something. And great, we're done now. Yeah. That's right. And, and in the resilience space, that, that just doesn't happen because the world is forever changing. Your circumstances change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you're, you need to read and respond to adapt to whatever's going on in the world if you're going to continue to be resilient. So it includes things like, you know, business trends or, or, you know, well, yeah, you know, business trends and public perceptions, you know, where they're 
thoughts are going on certain products and, and being able to adapt to the, those changes. Is that is that what uh, you're you're uh, talking about? In part, well, tr- you know? absolutely. A truly resilient organisation is able to adapt to changes in its business environment. I mean, you, we we talk about business continuity and. When a, when someone goes out of business, isn't that the ultimate failure of business continuity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as as Tim Arment from the UK quite often says, isn't the hint in the name? Yeah, uh, someone you know, someone goes out of business for a strategic reason. We say that wasn't a failure of business continuity. Well, they stopped being in business. Yeah. So so the strategic things need to come in. They have to be there somewhere. And I think that that's a big shift from your know, business continuity can address all those operational level things and some sometimes to the tactical level. But the strategic ones, we still need to to bring in different thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how um, how does this relate to how do I word this? I don't want to make anybody sound upset. Uh, if that's the real definition of resiliency, what is business continuity and disaster recovery not doing right when it comes to resiliency? You know, yeah. what are they? What's what is what are they? They're thinking. What you know? Why are they thinking that resiliency is is business continuity? What? Why the gap? Uh, look, uh, you know, I thought we were only talking for an hour, but if, if we've got all day, <laughs> we, we could uh, we could delve into that. Uh, very, very difficult. I've actually been writing a, a series of blog posts recently under the label Days of Future Past where I've looked at how different people over the past 20-odd years have suggested that we need to do things differently in the BC space. And almost universally, they talk about addressing more risks and threats and and going into some, uh, some more strategic areas in some respects, but also it's about bringing the practice in, into a relevance with, with some of where strategic executives need to look. So... A lot of that is about just wanting to own the space. It's it's about how to keep positioning as things go forward. But at the end of the day, I, I really think the big promoter for resilience and why it's taken off with top management is because of the excessive focus on process and standardisation to the worst extent that's gone on in the BC space. Less so DR, that's always been heavily procedural and standardised because it doesn't deal with people that much. It's mainly with technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting the, you know, with, with the, uh, the, the gap that you uh, talked about there between the two. And it, it does seem, it kind of leads back to one of the points you said that you know, it, it's kind of like some people think resiliency is something you buy off a shelf. You know, and yeah. if they buy it off the shelf, well, then, you know, I, this is my project, you know, and I, exactly. I bought this software, or I bought this, you know, services some from some consulting firm or, or whatever the case may be. And if I f- do what they say, I can become resilient. Correct. You can buy high availability from an IT space, but you can't buy resilience. That's right. Yeah. And that at least you're, you're a, great, a great quote there earlier. Um, you know, resiliency is what you are. 
you know yeah you, you it, it's not something you buy uh, you know off a shelf and think that after six months of you know, sitting around the table and talking and writing a few things down boom we're resilient you know absolutely it doesn't work yeah. that way it doesn't work yeah. that way yeah and it certainly <laughs> doesn't work that way if we just do something and leave it sitting on the shelf after that yeah, that well, that happens with a, a lot of plans. You know, I I remember being in a place and a whole bookshelf was full of these white binders. You know, one for this area, one for that area, and one for you know uh, the the third area. And I just kind of went, well, what are these? <laughs> you know, who yeah. looked at these? You know, and when I opened them up, they were three years old anyway. Yeah. You know, and you know, I kind of went, well, these are a waste of time. They're not going to help you. You know, but, but they're you, out of date. But you had happy auditors. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. There were no audit tickets. You know, audit was all happy because they, they could see a binder, you know, and sometimes I don't think auditors really understand what it is they, they should be looking for, you know, what it is they, they need. And they just see it as, you know, here's our line of what we want to see in the checkbox. Yeah, Absolutely. And there you go. Yeah. That's great. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back talking with Ken Simpson about resiliency and join us. Uh, it gets even more interesting shortly, I'm sure. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today we're talking with Ken Sims. Ken Simpson, we're talking about resiliency, and Ken, in your in our first segment, you touched on uh, you know working in different realms and areas, and you know being having different experiences. Do you think that's what makes a good uh, business continuity practitioner? And uh, look, I I'm a great believer that. You and the, the the way I put it to a number of people is: if you want to get on in business continuity, get out, uh, get out into a profit center, get out even into another loss leading part of a business, get out and round out with some other 
specialist areas, so you start to cross-fertilise a lot of thinking. You know, if, if you go back to how business continuity practitioners tend to uh, conceptualise the strength and the core of the discipline is because we tend to have a, a wide perspective of what goes on in the organisation. We, we see a lot of things, you know, people doing even sort of very traditional ways of doing BIA tends to get you out there talking to a lot of areas of the business. And sometimes you find a lot of the vulnerabilities by being out doing that. So why doesn't it make more sense to go and flesh out that knowledge by going and working in some of those different business areas and, and starting to bring back different perspectives? I'm, I'm not saying give up on business continuity. I'm saying go out, learn about a little bit of other stuff, come back, and I think you, that will make you a much better BC practitioner. I agree. Um, we spoke with uh, Sue Baker uh, regarding... Uh, project management. Um, that turned out to be one of the key pieces that she mentioned too. You know, if you want to be strong in business continuity, go out and do and, and get some project management skills because it helps with stakeholder management. It helps bring all these different parties together, communications, governance. You know, it helps you understand a lot more and you get your fingers into more pies. So to speak. Absolutely. And, and there's a very good example, Alex. It Projects are the way things get changed in organisations today. And any way we want to build or enhance business continuity or DR will be done via projects. So we need to understand the core discipline of that. And, and business continuity, if nothing else, it is a program, not a project. And yet we quite often misunderstand program management here as doing the same thing year after year when in actual fact it should be about having a blueprint of how we do things across a multi-year program of work. Yeah, I agree completely. Okay, um, let's move to our next point, and one that I know you've written extensively about, and this is a topic, if people have listened to the last few uh, shows, has popped up in every single episode. Lessons learned. Why do we never learn from our past mistakes? And Ken, I know you've written uh, quite a few interesting articles about that. One in particular um, uh, entitled From PIP Alpha to Deepwater Horizon. Can you, can you talk about you know, our lessons learned and why we never seem to grasp that concept of you know, learning from what we've done in the past? Uh, sure. I'll just uh, – I'm not sure if people are aware. So um, Hyper Alpha was a, uh, a North Sea – uh, oil platform that was destroyed in 1988. So the analogy there is from from 1988, you know, fast in a North Sea oil platform with significant loss of life. You know, you fast forward to uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon, and the same kind of thing occurs. So what is it about these things that that we we don't learn from to some extent? So I, I there are two elements that I strongly believe. The, the first is most of the things that you read that are called lessons learned are not. They are, we need to have a category of things called lessons observed. They are only hmm. learned when we change something to, to behave and preferably to think a little bit differently. I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard the quote, I think, attributed to Einstein, and this is probably not the exact words, but we can't solve 
the problems we face today with the thinking that we use when we created those problems in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, if, yeah, we want to have lessons learned, then we, we need to take the observation and work out how we behave differently going forward instead of just saying, oh, a lesson I've learned is that I observed that this failed and I should have done this. And then we go and do the exact same thing again. And, and one of the lessons that we never learn, and and in that that post uh, that, that you were speaking about, I've, I've got a heading that says, efficiency is the enemy of reliability. When it comes to a, a quite often a decision between efficiency, which almost always gets translated as cost reduction, you know, shedding fat out of an organisation, sometimes that becomes a greater priority than the reliability of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we don't, well, that's one of the strategic risks that people don't learn that these things can't always be sheeted home to operate a failure uh, when they're in actual fact systemic and structural problems of the way organisations go about uh, prioritising efficiency versus reliability. And there's a whole school of thought in high reliability organising that that talks again about uh, you know, culture and, and how cultures of reliability need to be built not just uh, cultures of cost reduction and and staff shedding. Yes, yeah, agreed. So with, with the lesson, well, see, now I'm saying it, lessons learned. <laughs> lessons, <laughs> and I shouldn't be, of course. The lessons observed. What what do people need to do, or uh, people or, or especially organizations, and, and using the Deepwater Horizon example and the PIPA Alpha, you know, what is it we should have done, you know, after the first disaster? What is it we should have done so that we don't repeat those mistakes? You know, what kind of things do we need to consider? You know, it's not a lot of times, you know, when disasters occur, it ends up being a finger pointing exercise more than anything else. You know, yeah. Look, if, if it's it's very difficult, I think, to, to say what should we have done. I mean, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. So after the UK issue uh, that was back in 88, they introduced a, a number of different ways that people wanted to look at safety issues. I mean, they had a massive inquiry into it. It's not to say there was any sort of shoddy work um, that, that came from it. And people probably did think they were learning. And but 10 years later, we had a major problem here in Australia at a place called Longford, which was a gas plant, and it led to a massive uh, disruption in the state of Victoria here. But that plant had implemented uh, so much of the work that came out of the the inquiry from the UK Piper Alpha. So, yeah, they, they'd introduced a, the, the safety case regime that, that came from there, but they still had failures. So uh, I'm not sure that, that there's any... You know, we, we would simply be making an observation there. The, to, to actually learn from that kind of thing would require a, a massive investigation and research, you know, properly structured research into why these things go. What we see repeatedly is, I keep coming back to that same thing, it's the efficiency measures and the cost-cutting 
that tends to happen around what those uh, safety regimes were meant to do. You go and research the, the safety regime and the safety culture inside BP uh, ahead of Deepwater Horizon. And they had a top-down, from the very highest level, top-down driven safety culture that disciplined people for driving cars without tops on their coffee cups so they didn't spill them. But yet they can still make the kind of mistakes that lead to to massive impacts. So some of it is where we get to the, the point of trying to heavily proceduralise and processise things that, that we we lose track of, but it's about the people and their behaviour again. <clears throat> and if you remove the people, well, then, you know, there is no behaviour. You know, technology is not going to do the thinking for you. you know, yeah. At least we're not there yet, anyway. <laughs> that, that's right. And, and along with the, the lessons the observed versus lessons learnt debate, comes also the actual management of risk versus risk register management. You know, the fact that I've got a risk register with 101 badly expressed risks and uh, mitigations that have never been implemented, it doesn't mean I'm managing risk. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. Can you think of any other examples, you know, that, you know, with relation, related to the lessons observed and, you know, things that have that you may think have gone well, like maybe an organization that has done well, you learned from, let's see, see, I'm using that word, eh? you know, learned, learned from mistakes and have, you know, changed their behaviors, you know. Okay, it's, we tend to, to mainly see reported the things that don't work. I mean, and, and again, it goes back to this philosophy, I guess, I'm, I'm arguing that this is a journey and it's constantly evolving. If you look at the success stories post-Katrina uh, in New Orleans, one of the well-publicised was the way Walmart responded. But yet today, Walmart are struggling big time and they have some serious public relations problems. So they were able to do something in one instance and and people used it as an example. But they possibly within their own organisation weren't extremely resilient and the lessons they might have observed were not the lessons they needed to learn. The same, I, I wrote uh, a contribution to a paper from the Risk Management Institute of Australia last year, uh, uh, just a, chat, a chapter in the paper, and uh, I used a case study of Lehman Brothers because that was a, uh, another example of this where, where people have, have thought they were being resilient, but perhaps they weren't. Because Lehman Brothers... Uh, people might not know, were one of the poster children for success for recovery after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Centre in New York. And you, know, you could delve in and say they were, uh, maybe they were lucky, but anyhow, they, they were promoted around the world and a particular uh, IT company uh, did a lot of promoting of it because it was their tool set that helped them achieve their results. 
and they were back up and uh, an improvised trading floor online within 48 hours of the attack, 6,500 staff displaced, you know, really good news story for, for business continuity and particular for IT disaster recovery. Fantastic. Seven years later, September 15, 2008, they filed for bankruptcy after the US subprime mortgage crisis. So, you know, were they resilient? No. But they got lucky or had success in one space that didn't necessarily translate. And I think that's part of the whole issue about whether we're observing the right lessons sometimes and whether we're learning what we need to learn from those. So with Lehman Brothers, does that, I know you said they weren't resilient. <clears throat> if, if a company is resilient, I guess they can lose it, right? With Absolutely. the people that come on board, they can, you know, they can have something great leadership or resiliency in place. And then, you know, it just disappears because attitudes change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it goes back to another one of the, the, uh, statements or concepts that, that I like from the Resolves group that, that say that you have to always talk about resilience in context. So, yeah, Lehman were able to cope well with a physical disaster that also impacted a lot of the world around them and they were resilient in that context, but they weren't resilient in some of their practices around financial risk and product risk uh, what they were exposed to in that subprime space. So, yeah, resilience in context, I think, is a super important concept to, to bring back to, to looking at what you need to learn and, and how you need to think about your own organisation. Right. And maybe what, what they had, to, to your point, is they had some great um, plans in place and maybe they did drills, you know, to move staff and bring systems up somewhere else. But when it came to something that wasn't a physical disaster, something they could actually see and touch, all of a sudden they were just lost. You know? Yeah, and and the, the latter problem was in some ways cultural about here's a, an opportunity we can exploit to make a lot of money without necessarily fully understanding the risk profile of operating in that space. Mm -hmm. They saw the dollar signs and chased after that. Uh, Poss were, possibly, I, I, you know, I shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't and say they that. were not alone. Mm -hmm. Wow. <clears throat> were there any others? Can you think of anyone else that's done that? I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing this. That you know, companies success stories that eventually weren't success stories. Uh, there, there's. I, I, you've caught me just trying to think about ones I, I, that are firsthand that I'm probably not at liberty to speak about because therein lies our problem. It's only the spectacularly public ones that we learn about. The, the more mundane day-to-day -day things that we, we all experience, most organisations aren't willing to allow that to be explored and discussed outside their organisation, which makes it a bit difficult to have a lot of real quality, proper research that we can base these kind of decisions on. Right. <clears throat> makes you wonder, you know, if you don't want to talk about it, are you hiding something? Was there something that, you know, you don't want us to know or, you know, 
that that because that's what happens you know, when you're talking with the media when you don't want to give information they start thinking are you hiding something so if, you know if I, I think I think it was uh, Harold K Drager the or the president of the International Emergency Management Society on our first episode said you know it it would be great if some of these organizations and governments who have some of these situations shared the information that's how we would all be able to move forward you know and but i guess that that just doesn't happen and i don't think you know to your point a a lot of companies don't want to do that no because it can make you look bad in the media and with analysts yeah and then you use your share prices and you end up you know it all it all comes down to the mighty dollar Absolutely, and and that's what guys at that level are uh, compensated and incented to not let happen. So that's their job to not let that happen. Right. Okay, and on that note, we have to take our second break. We're talking with Ken Simpson about uh, resiliency, and we'll be right back with Preparing for the Unexpected. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We're talking with Ken Simpson about resiliency. Uh, Ken, we've sent some messages back and forth uh, between each other over the years, and I know there's one thing that you do want to talk about, and that's how we change people's thinking when it comes to resiliency. So, you know, can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, I think, Alex, I think that's absolutely the key. Uh, When I first started uh, blogging, as we said at the the top of the show, there weren't that many of us out there, and 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 we were struggling with what the concept was. And like most people, I, I was at the those purely operationalized definitions. How do I make this applicable in my BCDR practice? And the more I've delved into it, the more it's it's convinced me that it's all about culture and being open to embracing other ideas. 
And if I relate that change of thinking back to what we were talking about uh, just before the break, is about if my current mindset can't let me learn a lesson, then I simply observe it and write it down, but I don't actually learn it because I can't learn it. My mindset won't let me learn it because my worldview tells me that this will never happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we get to the whole, you know, the whole argument that Talib presents in, in making the case about black swans. So, for instance, a couple of years back, for I think it was for BC Awareness Week, uh, I did a webinar that talked about things like that. And, and I actually surveyed the audience to ask how many people had ever read any of Talib's work and how many of them only ever understood the concept of black swan by listening to what other people had told them about it? And it was like massive, hardly anyone had, had read his work. Um, and it is heavy going, I, I admit that. But the amount of people who talk about black swans and absolutely did not understand the concept and and think that you can actually anticipate them and, and you know, that they're missing the whole point. So, so we've got to... Within the industry, we quite regularly don't even take the time to learn about a concept like black swan that we trot out and use all the time as a reason for why we should get more funding or or do more work. So I think that the change of thinking is very much about opening your mind to other things. So I, uh, a, a year or so back, or two years back now, started a podcast called Beyond the Black Stump, and, and the black stump is a, a concept uh, in you know, early Australian mythology, I guess you like. And, and it, it marked, it was, it was a tool that people used to mark the edge of the surveyed or known landscape. They would simply burn a tree, basically blacken a stump. And that was the, as far as we'd surveyed. So it's a metaphor for the edge of, of the known universe and how, if we really want to open our thinking, we need to go beyond the back black stump, beyond think beyond the known universe and the world we work within today. So, you know, we talked earlier about project and program management, absolutely critical to properly learn and understand for business continuity and disaster recovery professionals. But we need to learn and understand where those spaces are going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been fortunate through the the work I do to have spent a lot of time in the last couple of years working and practicing in organizations who are doing things on agile thinking. And there's a lot that we can learn in the, in contributing to being resilient by adopting agile thinking and practices. Well, it's, if you think of it this way, I mean, this is a very simplistic uh, telling of a story, but if we go into the project management space, let me see if I can tie a couple of these concepts together. If we go into the project management space, we have a huge problem with managing risk because we have to put all these plans in place up front. And so therefore we have increased uncertainty as we move forward. So we have to have risks to manage uh, risk management to manage that uncertainty. In an agile approach to that, you would only have sufficient documentation needed to get you started and move to the next major milestone or phase, therefore you've reduced 
the uncertainty by not having to plan plans the wrong word but but not having to plan and document everything up front so different ways of thinking that say you don't have to plan everything down to the nth degree at the, the startup now if we took that same philosophy and, and agile thinking and learning to adapt rather than follow a plan doesn't that tell us that we're going to have organizations and business continuity teams and crisis teams that are better able to be resilient to adapt to any change in their circumstances when they're learning to adapt and their whole response and recovery mechanism is based on just enough planning augmented by the the cultural and behavioral parts that let you adapt as the circumstances change so it, it's it's thinking very differently, people centric thinking rather than process centric thinking, and and thinking about you know, back at the top of the show we talked about you know resilience being different in in individuals, organisations, and at a community level. If an organisation isn't becoming more like a community in some respects, then it's going to actually struggle a little bit on that resilience part because command and control organisations are really resilient. Mm-hmm. So very, when very long-winded answer to your simple question about thinking differently. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. With with culture, I'd like to just touch base on the the cultural part. Are you talking about the organizational culture, like how the leadership feels, or how or the type of industry, or you know the location? You know, uh, can you clarify you know, what exactly what you mean by the the cultural aspects? Uh, sure. Look, it's it's all of those things. I mean, if you look at uh, one of the practices in the BCI's uh, Good Practice Guide, talks about embedding uh, BCM into the culture. And one of the problems we face in the quite often in the, the risk resilience in BC space is that we actually have no idea about what culture is, and so. I'd advocate that that's another part of the thinking we need to go and learn about. Uh, and I wrote a, an article for uh, Continuity Insights, I think it was, some years back called Embedding Culture into Business Continuity because uh, until we do that, we're not going to get very far. So so understanding what the culture of your organisation is about and and how you need to interact with it. I mean, if you go into an accounting department, you you expect under the label of culture, we will we will have certain expectations about their willingness to take risks. Now, the risk culture of accounting is risk averse. If you go into marketing, yeah, they're generally cowboys, and, and <laughs> they're willing, they're willing to take a few more risks. So it could be as again at a very base level like that that says that these these groups have different cultures around risk. They also probably have different cultures around process and documentation. And if I come to if I was to promote a conversation between those two groups about the one right or wrong way to do something they're probably not going to agree so how do you bring them together because if they're if you've got different thinking like that within the same organization 
how could you get them on the same page you know, or ideas, you know, whether it works or not, I don't know, but you know, ideas to, to bring them onto the same page to help you know, instill resiliency within that organization you know, if yep. they're all going off in their own direction. Yeah, look, good, good question. And I think that that's not going to be uh, a successful area of practice for business continuity. When you want to change cultures or you want to shape culture, the CEO doesn't normally think of the BC guy as the place to go for that. They go to HR. So there was a major survey done here a couple of years back where a researcher went and spoke to, I think it's about 50 CEOs on the subject of resilience. And they all said that it was primarily a problem of culture and that the HR department was the place you would go to, to build this. And uh, that came as a bit of a shock to business continuity community. Uh, so if, if, if we're going to attempt to address culture, we need to understand a little bit more about it. So even if we just learn enough to understand some of the elements, making cultural changes is a profound problem. And let's face it, if, if culture was easy to change, most organisations would be perfect today, wouldn't they? And we know that's not true. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so you, if you understand enough about it to try to find how you can bridge, because you can't get them all to think the same, so what is it that you need to bridge between these organisations? And does that mean to say that both a, a, a marketing department and an accounting department have to have the same structure and format of a business continuity plan? So no yeah. cookie cutters. Well, yeah, cookie cutters are, are, are great, you know, but if you're making cookies, um, <laughs> it's not necessarily a useful tool in an organisational context when we've got so many different moving parts that, that do things in different ways. So in in, in essence, they can kind of... I don't want to say do their own thing, but have something uh, developed for them to 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 move each area to move forward differently, but together at the same time, as long as they're getting to do it their own way. You know that that meets their cultural, you know, uh, perspective and the the way they do things. Right? It's meeting the meeting their need. You know. At the end of the day, we need to build capability to respond in organisations. The, the documentation of that, the, the structure of it, isn't what we're trying to do. Capability isn't a plan, isn't a document. It's something that, that people are going to be able to achieve with some help from some pre-planning and some thought. When we mm -hmm. come to build capability in a department, that almost has to be aligned to that group and how they do their business. You know, what's the one thing we hear business continuity people say all the time, I can't be held accountable for your plan, you have to write it yourself. That's the thing we say over and over, isn't it? 
Yeah, but, yep. but then we say, oh, but by the way, you have to do it the way I told you to do it. Yeah, kind well, of contradictory, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either you need <laughs> to learn a lot more about the organisation you're working with and, and help document their plans in a way that works for them or you just accept that you're doing compliance-based, audit-based documentation, you're not building capability because, again, capability comes back to how people are going to do the, re the response and recovery, how they're going to read the, the situation they're in and adapt to it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like anything, you know, you... You could line five people up and show them you know, a picture, and everyone sees something different. You know, absolutely. But it's the same picture. You know, you can have the same fire in a building, the same, you know, car crash or you know, something terrible. You know, but everyone's going to see something different. You know, and respond absolutely. differently. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I do have another question for you. Can yeah. you give us a, a short version, just for anyone who might not know what this is, can you explain exactly what a black swan is? Because <laughs> I, I know you mentioned it a few times, and I didn't want to cut you off, and, and then uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, what if a bunch of people might not know what this is? Can you give us you know, a minute or two of a quick definition of what that is? Uh, in a minute or two, it's... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Look, uh, the black swan, so it, it's uh, a concept that was made popular by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his book of the same name. Quickly, there are three things that would come with this, that it's, uh, it's a rare event that it's beyond uh, what we would normally expect to happen. Uh, it, it's... It's a big, major impact thing, but but more importantly, uh, it's it's probably driven by psychological biases within the people to say it can't happen. You know, it's this. It's not going to happen to me. Problem, and it can't happen um, because it's a logical fallacy driven from early European settlement. When they came to Australia, it's our fault, by the way. They discovered that we <laughs> that, that that we had black swans. And up until then, in Europe, they'd only seen white swans. So, therefore, all swans are white. Therefore, there can't be such a thing as a black swan. It can't occur. And all of a sudden, they found some. <laughs> so, yeah, a, a major incident that, that basically we psychologically believe can't occur. So, we oh. can never, never anticipate it. Great. I, I had a feeling people might not know what that is. That's why I thought I'd ask you that. And on that note, we're coming to a close of another show. I'd like to thank Ken uh, very much for his insight and his tips and uh, commentary. Please check uh, Ken's writing out. It's really good. I enjoy checking it out on uh, Resilience, Resilience Ninja. Am I saying it right? Correct. Resilience.ninja is the URL. Right. And check out the Beyond the Black Stump a podcast on blackstump.fm and this is another episode of preparing for the unexpected thank you everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next week thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected please tune in for another edition featuring your host alex Fullick, next thursday at 6 a.m pacific time and 9 a.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel 
We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.